Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Many thanks for joining us on the Journal of Biophilic Design today. Um, just as a heads up, we have got the Cities issue uh, coming out for the Journal of Biophilic Design. We've also had home, healthcare and workplace. So if you've already bought a copy, thank you very much. You can also, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, support us by buying us a coffee. Um, on, go to search on buymeacoffee.com and search for the Journal of Biophilic Design. Um, we're really excited to be joined today by uh, Karen McLennan. She's assistant professor in neurodiversity in the Department of Psychology at Durham University. Her research focuses on understanding how autistic people's sensory processing differences relate to their mental health and experiences of different environments, which is obviously really relevant to what we're doing here at, with Biophilic Design. She's co-producing research to support mental well-being and make environments more enabling for autistic individuals. But Karen, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about biophilic design and many other things. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, before we start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what sort of what sort of took you on this journey? What got you interested in sort of finding a bit more about, you know, autism and, and sort of sensory reactivity? Yeah. Um, well, for me, I actually came to academia a bit later than others and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was a very lot of did a lot of creative stuff and I did um, a performing arts diploma at college and then was a bit yeah not sure what I wanted to do and thought that kind of science and maths and things were a bit beyond me um, and then I got very personally interested just reading about psychology and stuff like that and then um, decided to go to university as a mature student um, which was an interesting experience but very fun and actually as part of that I did a placement um, with the Centre for Autism um, at uh, the University of Reading. The, the people who work in that realm really fascinating, got really into that research area and um, did my dissertation on, on sensory experiences um, and then yeah the whole world of <laughs> the whole realm of neurodiversity and everything kind of opened up for me um and yeah this kind of different sensory experiences across lots of different people and really realizing kind of you know because we all experience the sensory world we're all taking in sensory input at all times and that's how we interact with the world and actually seeing and and hearing experiences of how different people do that um I just still find really fascinating and you can really apply that to yourself and notice kind of the things that you um respond to in your environment and actually see how that re reflects in people who have differences in the way they process sensory information so yeah then I went all the way on did PhD and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> you must find it really interesting when you go somewhere. I mean, I got a bit of on piece with the with the um with the with the script here, but um, you must find it really interesting when you go to different places, whether it's like a shopping mall or whether it's you know just a coffee shop. Just you must mm. sort of find yourself looking at places and kind of thinking, ah, oh, that's this is really going to be annoying for people, and they could just have done this slightly different if they'd have only just done X. Do do you find yeah. yourself doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. Especially, um, yeah, with the kind of more recent work I've been doing and really it, it's made me yeah, much more heightened to considering when I'm in different environments, like even things when I'm like, oh, I'm not enjoying this so much. And then I'm like, wow, actually, for people who really struggle with sensory input, 
um, or certain sensory um, environments, this must be really, really challenging because actually I don't even want to be in here. <laughs> so it, even though I can never, you know, put put myself in the position of somebody who has that level of kind of struggle in certain environments, you can still kind of, yeah, be aware, especially because, you know, I, I spend a lot of my job <laughs> talking to different people and hearing their experiences so yeah I, I do definitely do that and comment on it a lot as the at the, at the realm of researchers I work in with um who all do kind of sensory stuff we're constantly talking about like the sensory environment and sensory experiences <laughs> and all of that is it's a bit of a thing <laughs> um we get we're going to sort of talk about different senses and that as we go along um I'm, I'm sure there's probably one sense that affects people more than others um you know there's probably one thing that kind of like gives people an overload I think I might know what that is but I'm going to ask you that as we go along um you speak and, and write about uh sensory reactivity um mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit about what that term means please the kind of main distinction with using the term kind of reactivity is that I do focus a lot more on people's experiences and behaviors um and kind of my work looks at it from that area so um although i talk about sensory processing differences that is more related to what's happening in the brain which obviously is really challenging to study unless you're a neuroscientist because we don't really know what's going on in the brain but from looking at people's responses and kind of um reactions to the sensory environment to sensory input we can make inferences about what might be going on in the brain so it might be so for example i talk about um uh sensory hyper reactivity um which is a term that refers to um people who may react more strongly to sensory inputs so they might experience sensory inputs such as sounds or touch or taste as kind of overwhelming or painful um so a kind of really um almost negative response to sensory input and from that we can infer that actually that might be that there's something in their brain that is processing that information and that sensory information differently um than kind of the the general norm is what we kind of talk about when we talk about things comparatively being different um and um so because I am not a neuroscientist, that's why I talk about things such as um, reactivity. But we can also see that people um, can be under-responsive um, to sensory input as well. So they might not notice, um, again, sounds or something as much as others. Um, and also another behavior that we can see in people who have sensory differences is um, sensory seeking. So people might become more fascinated or fixated by certain sensory input and may seek it out kind of more um, for longer periods of time and more repeatedly. Um, so often that is involved with kind of more sensory enjoyment, but it can also be involved with some challenges if, if it's a negative um, input that somebody is struggling to disengage from or is just generally struggling to disengage and that can be distracting for kind of day-to-day -day life and stuff so yeah that's more the kind of area that I, I conduct my research in. Okay so how does it affect um, people with autism and sort of people who are neurodiverse I mean mm. you kind of sort of touched on you know how it you know refers in, in those instances. Yeah so we know that um, a kind of a, a range of different people can have um, differences in their brain that mean that they process sensory information differently um, and 
we know that this is kind of more common in autistic people. Um, so estimates are it kind of go up to around 94% of autistic people can experience um, sensory processing differences. And that doesn't mean that they get all three of those kinds of you know types that I was, I was referring to. Um, it can be very individualistic. It can be very um, dependent on, uh, on the person as to how they experience that. Um, but because of that kind of really high prevalence of, of sensory processing differences in autistic people, it is part of the diagnostic criteria uh, for autism spectrum conditions now. Um, but we also know that there are other populations who have um, differences in the way their brains process sensory information, such as um, uh, people with ADHD, um, we also have links to um, anxiety, um, as well as uh, PTSD um, and OCD also kind of um, link in with these kinds of different sensory experiences. We don't always know if this is to do with kind of actually there being differences in the way that people's um, brains actually process that information, or if it is to do with more kind of um, arousal levels that you get so for example somebody who's anxious tends to kind of be you know in flight or fight a lot of the time so they might be more um, uh, on guard to their environment and might overly process their environment in that way and then might be more likely to um, react negatively to sensory input for example um, so there's still a lot we don't know um, kind of what's going on you know in the brains um but we do know that these reactions um are present across lots of different populations so um yeah it's basically it's not uh specific to autism it just is very common um in autistic people the issue that's kind of this is parallel to is our um cities issue and i've been very interested in how we can reduce sound and the cacophony in cities, for instance, because obviously that's one of the major, um, I mean, obviously apart from like the fact that there's like loads of people and lots of noise and lots of you know, lots of just bodies and cars and, and sort of activity that's surrounding us all the time. What are the particular challenges um, that people with autism, um, particularly, or people who are like neurodiverse have in these environments? Like if you're on public transport or if you're in stadiums or, you know, just outside mm -hmm. spaces generally, what are you what are you finding are the kind of main challenges that people are finding in, in cities generally? Yeah, so, um, I mean, firstly, it, that traditionally there's not been a huge amount of research that has looked at the effects of environments um, for autistic people. It's more kind of considering the individual factors. So um, our work is kind of in a very small realm that has started looking at this, which I hope keeps growing. Mm -hmm. um, but we know um, that there are, from, from our research, that um, autistic people told us that a lot of environments are really disabling for them. And mm -hmm. so this isn't just, you know, the fact that they you know related to access needs but actually um they're finding that yeah they are are being disabled by their and by a lot of environments because of sensory input um and as you said like a lot of these um uh, um places public places such as public transport supermarkets restaurants um healthcare settings places like that they are innately quite heavily sensory burdensome environments um but also we found that although autistic people obviously told us a lot of different um 
things about the sensory landscapes in those places that are really challenging, which is which feeds into a lot of research that we already know and what autistic people tell us a lot um, to do with, you know, sounds of living a lot of sound, a lot of people, a lot of smells, lights, colours, all of this. They are quite, you know, heavy, um, burdensome sensory environments. Um, but actually, there's a lot of other factors that they told us interact with that sensory environment that can actually make spaces more disabling and actually some of the places they told us that they really enjoy going are places that do have really high sensory burden such such as stadiums or um live music events or um or i mean museums tend to be quieter but kind of these still busy public places and especially things like you know gigs and and sporting events are loud and there's a lot of stuff going on but um, obviously some of that is because people are able to prepare and go and engage with um, things that really interest them. Um, so there's, you know, I really enjoy doing this, therefore I can handle this environment. Um, but these other things that can kind of interact with the sensory environment, which actually is the stuff that we really can target. Because um, some places, you, you know, like as a city centre, you don't have a lot of control over the sensory input. There are things you can do. So for lights, you can obviously build tree canopies, stuff like that make sure there's tree canopy etc etc um but things like um considering like the spatial design so whether it you know spaces feel really enclosed or really open because more open spaces can be a, a lot more enabling because people aren't kind of getting funneled through um how predictable spaces are so being able to kind of communicate um ahead of time you know when the busy periods are or you know where you can find certain things or you know for autistic people being able to look ahead ahead of time know where the challenging sensory input is know how busy it's going to be know where everything is they need to go means that they can prepare a little bit further in advance and it's kind of reducing that um added burden on them to be able to navigate the space um also considering things like adjustments so for autistic people some might need um or, or want to engage in environments without having to use spoken communication, without having to speak to you know people in yeah. those environments. So things like you know having self checkouts and supermarkets takes away that added need if they are struggling to then have to speak to a person. So considering you know how that can apply to other environments is important, um, as well as understanding like pace needs. So if you know somebody's feeling overwhelmed and an autistic person's in a really loud, busy environment, they might need a bit longer to be able to navigate and to be able to, you know, achieve whatever they need to achieve, or if they're buying something or whatever that may be, just like allowing some space for somebody to process and to be able to, you know, take their time and get what they need. Um, and also having kind of spaces where people can take a break and recover because a lot of these spaces aren't built or have any thought for you know they just want to get people in and out um so things places like supermarkets there's you know there's no nowhere to take a break that's a little bit quieter or you know to be able to have a moment just to kind of recoup to be able to carry on in that environment so that was something that was talked about a lot um, by our participants um and also the other thing is the kind of lack of understanding um more generally in the public as well as with staff at certain places people tend not to understand a lot about autism as well as sensory challenges that people might be facing and that can be really hard when somebody for example might um if an autistic person is experiencing kind of sensory overload um we call it um and that can 
sometimes look like um, a meltdown, but it can sometimes look like kind of a shutdown. So it might be that somebody is really, really struggling and they've reached their limit. And, you know, ideally, we obviously want to make spaces where this doesn't happen. Um, but presently, this is something that that um, autistic people might experience. And, you know, we are in situations where people tend to call security or, and call, or call the police on people rather than knowing what they're seeing and uh, providing support. So, um, or judging people if they're using their own support strategies, such as um, stimming, which we might see in different motor behaviours, or kind of using fidget toys and things like that. You know, people are still kind of really stigmatising those sorts of things. Um, mm which means that autistic people maybe aren't accessing tools that they need to navigate these spaces. So all of these things are really important about you know, the sensory environment. So we need to consider all these other factors and different things that we can address in different environments because whatever we can address, reducing the burden of those is really, really important um, because then it means that even if you can't actually change the sensory environment itself, there are all these other things you can do that can make these spaces more enabling. Um, so yeah, that's really kind of the main thing that our research has um, has shown so far. Mm. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I, I sometimes get myself, I just, I get a bit overloaded in when I'm in a supermarket or in a minute, it's just like there's the beeping, the lighting, all these mm. factors just, you know, just a bit too much sometimes mm. you know there's trolleys and you know there's just sound and a load of metal stuff and reflective mm. um surfaces so um you know I was going to ask you but I I think sound is one of the biggest stresses um are, are you is that is that one of the things that sort of comes up that a lot is it is it sound yeah so in a, a previous study I did I wanted to find a little bit more about kind of those the sensory input that autistic people find to be kind of the most challenging or enjoyable and things like that um and yes sound was the most common one yeah. that um, people talked about and that was to do with kind of like loud like loud spaces and sudden kind of loudness and une unexpected and unpredictable loudness um as well as places that do have kind of a lot of background noise and as you described there the, those kinds of experiences in the supermarket are the kinds of things that can really build into that but i think um from what autistic people have been describing it is like all of that is screaming at you like it is like having that but turn cranking the volume up to the point where you know it, it you know they use those kinds of methods and torture <laughs> in yeah. places. So, you know, that is kind of the experience that is happening there. And obviously there's, you know, um, a lot of autistic people I've spoken to do take strategies. So they listen to music to kind of control that sound input or use ear defenders and things like that. So there are kind of self-driven strategies that can be done, but equally there's a lot of spaces where, you know, we, it would just be a more pleasant environment if that kind of acoustic setting was um, considered a little bit more. But then there are a lot for it will really depend on on the individual because there are some people who maybe don't find sound as bad, and there are you know visual inputs that will also be really challenging. So um, yeah, I think kind of globally it does seem that sound is a is a big challenge but there are definitely a lot of complexities and also we do experience all of this as an onslaught at all times when we're in those spaces so yeah 
Yeah, exactly. I always find it quite remarkable when you are talking to like business owners or something, or you're talking to designers and they're sort of, they say, yeah, they haven't even thought about sound. You know what I mean? The business, <laughs> you know, when they, when they come to bring in like, oh, we want to bring in these like acoustic panels, we want to do, muffle the sound, or we want to create, mm. you know, um, individual spaces or like the nook pods, you know, kind of create places where people can go to and they're going, well, what do we need that for? You know, we've got, we've given them desks over there, you know, and they don't, they're just only it's going to cost money to put a like a thing up, but actually, well, you know, you're not going to get the productivity out of your staff and they're probably going to walk even though they might be like amazing programmers or whatever it is that they're doing you know so yeah that's the thing it's the the open plan office argument where yeah. everybody thought it was a great idea for you know building connections and collaboration and getting the buzz and I get like some people definitely love that buzz and some people love having you know being immersed in kind of noisy environments yeah. but for the people who struggle with that it is really really disabling um, and as you said it can you know it you know really stop people from being able to access employment and you know yeah. healthcare and services that they you know essential services so yeah, yeah. it's yeah it's an issue so the sort of visual complexity as well I think it, it that drives me nuts I can't stand it if there's like little bits hanging around and envelopes that's half open and stuff and it's just like it freaks me out mm -hmm. <laughs> I just got so much stuff going on in my mind anyway and I just see like little bits and bobs everywhere I just got to have mostly my in my immediate work environment I mean my the rest of my house I've got like crazy load of books and knickknacks mm -hmm. and stuff like that but they all mean something to me but in my mm -hmm. workspace I just need to have it kind of uniform so they're all black books there <laughs> and I just said yeah it's just it's just it tends to re-overload it's just a visual thing as well as as that so anyway I want, I want to sort of bring it back to biophilic design because we all love mm -hmm. biophilic design mm -hmm. um, in, in your sort of um in your research and things and your findings what what are you quite seeing that biophilic design you know how can we bring in biophilic design to support um neurodiversity wherever that may be yeah so I think again it's one of those things that it's talked about a lot in kind of architectural built environment literature mm. and that kind of research. Whereas in psychology research, it's mm. actually there obviously is like nature, effects of well-being, those kinds of studies that we do, but there's very little that's actually looked at biophilic design, you know, in the environment and how that can affect people. So um, although the built environment literature is great and it's amazing that there's, you know. Um, stuff out there that's talking about how you can use that to benefit well-being but also autistic people as well um, a lot of it isn't kind of there's the kind of experimental studies to kind of actually really look into that and say okay well do, does it have an it does it improve like does it help people but we do know obviously the effects of kind of nature on well-being so it is one of those that I think we we need a bit more research to look into it um, a bit more um, but like from our study, the kind of top enabling public space that autistic people talked about were outdoor spaces. Um, mm -hmm. So talking about, yeah, parks, woodlands, beach, those kinds of places. Um, and the, yeah, basically, you know, finding those to be enjoyable spaces. Um, and there has been a bit of research that's looked at kind of the effects of nature um for autistic people um especially in children and kind of um showing how it could be beneficial for um development so um, sensory motor development emotional and social development so it can kind of have these sorts of benefits um as well as kind of highlighting some of the 
the challenges um, to kind of engaging in natural spaces, such as um, fears of kind of judgment, um, as well as, um, uh, you know, there's still kind of elements of uh, natural spaces that can uh, induce anxiety, um, as well as kind of safety concerns as well. So there are kind of some barriers for that. Um, but as I said, like bringing that into actually looking at if we're incorporating natural elements into design, looking at those effects in autistic people specifically hasn't been looked at. And we really need to look at that because um, especially because of the sensory challenges that autistic people face, we need to make sure that whatever is being incorporated into environments and into built environments is beneficial because I think that um kind of using natural elements although I think that there's based on kind of other other work and kind of what we know and anecdotally um using elements of biophilic design would lend itself to making environments more enjoyable for autistic people because of things like the the color schemes tend obviously uh, it, it it aligns with our kind of innate processing and we are better able to process um nature and natural shapes and patterns a lot easier so i think that if you kind of apply that to people who might have differences in sensory processing incorporating design features that do play into that more easier kind of processing um should be beneficial and the fact that natural uh, design tends to be uh, using kind of these softer patterns and things like that. So um, I think that basically it, sh it should lend itself really nicely to supporting, um, as we know it does, <laughs> it helps a lot of people anyway, that I think that the evidence would kind of support that it's beneficial for autistic people. Um, and also the, um, BSI Design Guide for Neurodiversity, um, which recently came out, really focuses on um, kind of the sensory, how to make uh, built environments more sensory inclusive. And they mentioned biophilic design quite a few times throughout that and about how, you know, making more predictable sight lines and things like that and how natural design and biophilic design does kind of feed into that. Um, and yeah, so I, I feel like um, there's a lot of benefits that would have even things like being able to incorporate you know we know that if there's if there is more actual greenery and stuff in spaces that is a kind of natural um a, a dampener of sound like it absorbs sound and stuff yeah. like that so um and our, our brains enjoy processing that kind of information like looking at plants and things like that and I did do some pilot work um in autistic people looking at um uh preferences for looking at different visual like videos and sounds um and as part of that I included nature stimuli and um they were um you know uh, rated as being very enjoyable uh, for autistic people as well so um would like to do more work in that direction but uh, I've just done some pilot work for now so yeah it's really good I think we spoke before before you know obviously it was a couple of weeks ago uh, yeah. about that because obviously yeah. I'm, I'm generating these virtual nature walls, so um, mm -hmm. which are sort of video scapes with with nature scapes and kind of foley and and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it'd be great to to run pilot studies with you and and just kind of see yeah. see what happens, really see how we can make spaces better for people. Yeah, helping them fine tune mm -hmm. it for themselves. 
Um, I know mm -hmm. David Coyman talks about that, doesn't he? About sort of like how you fine tune it for the individual. Like for his in instance, his nook pods, they can he can mm -hmm. tune the lights and he can they can people can tune the colours and you know get get it personally for them. I also like the fact they've got fiddlesticks and stuff they can fit under the desk. You know, I think it's just so yeah. I think it's just brilliant. I think they're really really good. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add, Karen? Yeah, I guess the the main thing that I kind of want to say when we're thinking about designing spaces um, and, you know, obviously I'm talking on behalf of my participants here as mm. well. Um, so I'm hoping I've re represented them in a way that um, it, it, it is appropriate. Um, but I think, again, this also came up in the BSI design guide and is really important to the work that I do is that to make sure that we're doing and designing spaces and experiments and studies and whatever we're doing that are going to benefit autistic people that they need to be involved in the process and I think that that is a kind of key thing is that we can do as much science and research as we want but actually if we're not checking in and on a kind of case-by-case -case basis making sure that what we're doing what we're applying does actually suit the, the people who are mm. going to engage with that space and I think that's where it, I mean we can apply that beyond just talking about autistic people like yeah. for example if we are building a you know new school <laughs> and you know the design team should be talking to the people who are going to use that space talking to the kids talking to you know is this great will this work for you it does this you know how is this going to benefit you and the same you know if you're building a, a care home talk to people who would engage and use a care home and find out actually is that a beneficial space for them because um although we can say oh okay well we know this about autistic people for example we can take these elements and apply this to this space it actually might not apply as well we can use it as a good starting block yes. for actually being able to check in and be like okay well is this space enjoyable will this work for you i think that is the most important thing and that is how we are now starting to do our research as well um, more and more like all of my research I have kind of consultants who work on the project or I collaborate with autistic researchers or whoever is kind of that you know it, it would be involved and is has is a stakeholder as part of that um, to make sure that whatever we're producing does work for everybody because I think that there's just been this kind of gung-ho approach to a lot of stuff mm -hmm. where people think oh well, we're the you know we're architects we're the experts or we're you know the mm -hmm. business owners we're the experts and actually like not realizing that, that a lot of time we're producing end products but then people go nope don't like it <laughs> this <laughs> does not work for me um and as I said this is something that was really integrated in that BSI design guide for neurodiversity saying that these are kind of our guidelines of what we think is important and what you know based on what we know we can give you a general idea. However, importantly, they repeat over and over, do consult with the community to find out if this is actually you know, going to work for them. So um, I think that that is just something that I'm very passionate about in my research. And I think is really important for me to make sure that whatever I'm producing evidence-wise does also you know, reflect kind of lived experience and incorporates voices um, within that. and amplifies voices um who you know it, it's really going to actually benefit um and so yeah i think that should be applied to a lot of other other situations as well especially in the design context if you think about it you employ um different uh, skill sets mm -hmm. to do different parts of your business 
And with those skill sets comes different personality types, as we yeah. all know. I mean, you know, the ocean model and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that everybody has a different type of personality that do different things. You know, it, it, people listening to this, probably half of our listeners at least half of our listeners are hopefully on that wavelength anyway but the other half who might not have thought of that just yeah just just take a moment and think yeah actually if I'm going to be employing different personal you know different skill sets within my business they're probably going to have different personality types and therefore they're probably going to want different things within the workplace in order Mm. for them to flourish to be the yeah. best people they can be, to help well-being, to help keep them at work longer. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so they don't have more sick days, which is going to cost the business line. You know, because it's one of the things as well that when I'm discussing with people, they say, well, trying to get, for instance, biophilic design into the workplace. There's the economics of it. Mm. They say, oh, well, it's going to cost me. How much is it going to cost me to put those plants in, or how mm. much is it going to cost me to put that circadian rhythm lighting in? You know, how much? But actually, the the bottom line is you're going to get a better output. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think that like that is kind of a lot of why we do the research we do is to go like because a lot of my research is basically like I know this thing about the world because people are telling me but I'm going to put it into evidence so then I can take it back to people and go look statistically this percentage of people really benefited from this and in this way so for example showing if you use this type of you know if you incorporate biofect design this amount of people are going to work better and be happier etc and then people go oh yeah okay you can't argue that because the economic cost so I think yeah. like a lot of the work that I'm doing and others are doing is to kind of just bolster that kind of evidence to make sure these kinds of things um, um happen basically and I think um also kind of related to that that when I was talking about expertise and like you kind of you know, touched on that with kind of getting these different personalities involved and stuff um is actually recognizing that everybody has expertise. And like, I think there's a kind of hierarchy where people go, well, I'm the expert and these people don't know anything. And actually by working together and recognizing that everybody has expertise, even if it is lived experience, yes. like, you know, especially when you are trying to co-design and collaborate and work out and, you know, we're sharing spaces. Everybody who shares that space should be able to have some kind of input about how that space looks if you want to build a space that works for everybody. So I think, um, yeah, being able to, you know, we all have our, you know, I can do statistics. Great. That is my contribution. I can do, I can make this into a research paper. (laughs) But like, you know, getting everybody else's experience within that, it's a really fun creative space to kind of be in. Um, But if anybody is listening and does want to start getting community consultants involved, please pay them. (laughs) Because that's one thing that I've seen cropping up a lot is a lot of autistic people, for example, being asked to give their lived experiences and to talk about you know to review stuff for free and I just wanted mm-hmm. to add that if that is something that you're interested in doing lived experience is still expertise and they should be paid for their time still even though you know because you would pay a consultant they are still consultants it's just a different kind of expertise so yeah <laughs> like that thank you um before I ask you the final question which I ask everybody on the podcast um just just as a kind of to sum up really before I ask a like final one um what why for you why is nature connection important oh for me personally yeah oh I mean honestly I need it to survive <laughs> I feel like it is it is just essential for me and 
I mean, I, I, you know, I think it is for a lot of people. It's just whether you recognize that or not. And I, I really know that if I'm not engaging with natural environments and stuff like that, I can feel my well-being just plummeting. Mm. Um, and so it's not, you know, I know people go, oh, you should go out for a walk every day. For me, it's not just about that. It's about actually going and being in nature. And I, I really practice like mindfulness in nature as well. So I don't listen to audiobooks or music or whatever when I'm out and about in, in nature. I'll do that when I'm in cities. Um, but I will pay so much attention to the smells and the sounds and you know what, what I can see and hear. And I yeah, I, I really immerse myself in that. And I just find that I come back and I'm just like, I can breathe again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for, for me it's yeah, it's so essential to my and it makes me more creative. I always find that if I've gone like and spent some time by the beach or especially the beach actually, <laughs> or out in a forest, I it just I sometimes I do think about work. Um, but if I even if I don't, I come back and I just feel rejuvenated and yeah, ready to kind of and yeah, it really gets my creativity flowing. So um yeah, it's a very, very essential thing for me. <laughs> Well, that's great. So on, on that note, then, um, if you could paint the world with a magic brush of biophilia, what would it look like? Oh, my God, it'd be green. It'd just be so much more green. I just, yeah, whenever I see these amazing concept designs of like buildings that are just pouring with nature and just, you know, and seeing community projects where there's like a concrete jungle that they have planted and like, you know, put edible you know fruit veg things that the community can benefit from and yeah I just think uh, yeah anywhere like that like there's a space in um Usburn uh in Newcastle because I've recently moved up here um and it's in the middle of the city and it is just there's like a, a community farm and there's these big big bridges with trains and stuff going over and then just like a stream with all these trees just in in the city and I'm just yeah for me like that more of that everywhere would just be everyone would just be so much happier I think. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.